0: Hi, AJT readers, this is Roz Mannin from the University of Nebraska Medical Center and Deputy Editor of the AJT. I'm here today with your September 2023 Highlights podcast. As you know, Josh is still on sabbatical as ASD president, and I'm joined by two special guests both from Emory University and both in the Department of Surgery. Subbing today as a faculty member is Ken Newell, Professor of Surgery and Vice Chair of Academic Affairs. He's also an Associate Editor at the Journal. Hey, Ken.
1: Hey, Roz. Good to see you.
0: And today we're also joined by Kyle Jackson, Senior Fellow in Abdominal Transplant Surgery, also at Emory, and our Editorial Fellow. So hi, Kyle. How are you?
2: Hey, Dr. Mannon. Good. Thank you for having me.
0: How, how's this fellowship going with, not the surgical one, how's the uh, journal <laughs> yeah. fellowship
2: going? I, well, I can't comment on the first one because Dr. Newell's right here, <laughs> but the uh, the AGT fellowship has been awesome so far. It's been really eye-opening and educational to to see the different aspects of the journals involved and and be a part of that.
0: Well, I'm trying to put a plug in so that, fe- that uh, fellows and junior faculty think about if they don't have a lot of experience with journals that they consider applying and having sort of a general concept of, of the areas of interest. So without further ado, I'm going to give the run of show for the listeners. We'll first start with a paper by Ross Driscoll, Identifying and Understanding Variation in Population-Based Access to Liver Transplant in the U.S. Kyle will be delivering that and just talking about it. Dr. Newell will then, will switch over to him, and the topic will change completely to Tolerance. Intragraph B-cell differentiation during the development of tolerance and, uh, to kidney allografts is associated with regulatory B-cell signature revealed by single-cell transcriptomics by Gwynn et al., and then his second paper will be single-cell RNA-seq uh, reveals peripheral blood mononuclear immune cell landscape associated with operational tolerance and kidney transplant recipient by Azim et al., and then we'll finish up with me on a completely different topic, um, but all about the same things. We'll talk, uh, the next paper will be the impact of allele-specific anti-HLA class 1 antibodies on organ allocation by Melissa Young and colleagues at Brigham. And then the last paper will be autoantibodies against DNA topoisomerase 1 promotes renal allograft rejection by increasing alloreactive T cell responses by Gorbacheva et al., So without further ado, Kyle, I'll turn it over to you to tell us about your paper.
2: Thanks, Dr. Manon, for the kind of AJT readership for allowing me the opportunity to talk about this really cool and really timely paper that set out trying to quantify all the different types of variation and kind of population-based access to liver transplant. And kind of as everyone listening probably knows, there's been a lot of interest in this space lately and kind of thinking about and quantifying how patients move through the entire transplant process. You know, I think we've been pretty good figuring out once someone gets onto the wait list kind of what are the outcomes like and even after transplant what are those outcomes like but this paper really tried uh, to look at the steps even before that right and think about how whole populations even get to um, the transplant wait list and I think in liver this has been very tough as the authors point out because there's a there's a lack of kind of clear national data or at least one data source with which to answer this question And so and kind of I think when the authors are framing this they they, they told us that kind of old work in the space, uh, has looked broadly speaking at geographic variations uh, in access to transplant, but that's often at the OPO or kind of the, the DSA level, and it's a little harder to understand and quantify where variation in those regions are coming from. And when you get a little more granular, how would you even intervene on those units to improve access um, to transplantation? So what the authors did in kind of their novel contribution here was that they used something called transplant referral regions. To kind of think about geographic variations and, and transplant referral regions um, are kind of areas that are de, uh, defined as communities served by a transplant center or a group of centers. And so kind of another way of looking at this is saying that by focusing on transplant referral regions, we can really understand the degree to which liver transplant is driven by or access delivered transplant is driven by practice patterns of regions that are actually served by transplant communities and kind of these instead of these artificial kind of geographic dsa's or or opos so to do this the authors use national data from a number of different areas and they did a lot of really cool linkages between different data sets. We don't really need to go into the specifics probably, but they used SRTR data, American Community Survey data, data directly from HRSA and the National Center for Health Statistics. Uh, And Ultimately, what they were looking at, at was the percentage of variation in listing to death ratios attributable to transplant center practices, which are approximated By the transplant referral region. So basically, it was literally just defined as the number of listings within or wait list listings uh, within a transplant referral region divided by the number of deaths within that same region kind of over the study period. And that was their main outcome. And then they did a lot of cool statistics too that kind of sequentially looked at all the different possible sources of variation. So in one set, they looked at just causes of death among patients that lived in these transplant referral regions. They then added demographics of the patients who were in that same transplant referral region. They then took that model and added socioeconomic indicators of kind of the population. So things like the concentrated poverty index, the percentage of people with health insurance, things like that. And then finally they added to all of the above, they also added measures of what the transplant environment was like. So things like center competition, number of livers imported and kind of things like allocation policies. Um, and what they did is they looked at the percentage of variation in listing to death ratios that was attributable to all those things. And then whatever was left over is essentially what is the percentage of variation that is driven by the transplant referral regions. So basically between center differences in access to liver transplant. And what they found was that the listing to death ratio was on average 0.24 across the country. And what that means is that for every um, three deaths on the wait list within the average transplant referral region there was only one waitlist addition but there was substantial variation across the country or across transplant referral regions in kind of the quote unquote worst transplant referral region there were 9 deaths for every one waitlist addition but in the best transplant referral region there was only one death per waitlist addition so really pretty substantial variation they also found that individual, environmental, socioeconomic factors kind of all together only explained 60% of that variation in listing to death ratios across transplant referral regions. So almost 40% of the between us of the transplant referral regions differences were explained kind of by between center differences. Uh, and so I think kind of what I took away from this and kind of. Thinking about what the meaning of this paper was, is there are significant differences in population-based access to liver transplant in the U.S. Right, The listing-to-death ratio is very dramatically across transplant referral regions, right, from nine deaths per one waitlist addition to -to one-to-one. And this is even after adjustment for variability in clinical and demographic characteristics, right, so independent of the population that each transplant referral region serves. And kind of when quantifying which bucket everything applies to, it was really quite cool. The authors were able to show that about 15% of these between transplant referral region differences were demographic, but 35% were due to kind of socioeconomic issues. 10% was due to transplant environment. Uh, And again, 40% was thought to be due to the transplant center. So really, the transplant centers and transplant referral regions and socioeconomic issues were kind of the biggest um biggest drivers behind these the variability in different region performances. And so I think the point being, right is that it's important to kind of continue to work on understanding each of these different pathways and, and kind of how we get there. And so in thinking about the next step, I think one of the things that the authors point out too is that there's a lot of work to be done in this quote unquote unexplained variation space. So the author is saying that about 40 percent of the between transplant referral regions, um, differences in listing to death ratio is due to the centers themselves and what's going on there. You know, but the study isn't able to quantify exactly what those what those factors are. For example, are these differences in how centers and regions evaluate potential candidates? There are different listing practices, different referral patterns, even before we get to evaluation and listing? I think future work will likely focus on that space, and I think it's really important for kind of the day to day clinical work. And then also what kind of interventions might work on these transplant centers and transplant referral regions, right? Are these national policies that need to be made or these kind of local differences in listing practices? And what about the transplant referral regions more broadly? Uh, I think there are a lot of interesting things that can be done. And kind of when I was thinking about what the limitations of the paper were, I think the authors go into a lot of the nitty-gritty kind of about the statistics and the data sources and stuff. I don't think any of those really challenge the validity of the study. Um, I think that kind of the issue that stood out to me was there, the tr- transplant referral regions. I think are, they were used as the unit of analysis and I think it's a great improvement on kind of past work, but there are some transplant referral regions that are served by three or four centers. And so how, how do we think about differences between transplant referral regions in transplant referral regions where there's multiple centers and kind of the TRR kind of behaves as an aggregate of all the four centers? But I think in, in summary, this was an awesome paper that I think really pushes research in this area forward. And I think, you know, showed us a lot of really, really important data. and I'm excited to see where the authors and others go moving forward.
0: Well, great summary, Kyle. And I appreciate your observations. I enjoyed looking at the geographic distribution to sort of see what our, refer- I mean, I, I really like how they laid out these referral patterns. I think what's uh, most sort of complicated here is really, or not complicated, but challenging is knowing the center-to-center variation. And you look up in that sort of New Jersey, Pennsylvania region where the numbers are, you know, the numbers are really pretty high in terms of the adjusted listing to death. Again, we know there are many centers there. The population rate is pretty high. And you know, changing center behavior is a lot more difficult than changing a UNOS policy. That's for sure. So, I mean, I think you you outlined it very, very well. Ken, any comments? I know you're not a liver surgeon these days, but
1: I was just going to say, Kyle, is there any way to look at this data and compare it to access to organs? So it seems to me the two drivers of getting a liver transplant are. Are you in an area where you get offer a liver? But then the other is, are you in a center where the center considers you a candidate and is aggressive enough to accept a liver for you? Were they able to do that? Or is that is there a way in the future to intersect that to kind of say, which of these two is the major driver for not getting a transplant?
2: Yeah, the authors were were able to do that, you know, and I think uh, it kind of gets a little bit into the nuances of the study is that some uh, a lot of the data used in the study comes before you even get on the wait list. And so it's hard to think about how do people who are not even candidates for liver transplant get offers, Um, but they did try to use kind of surrogate, you know, in terms of number of potential donors. Uh, who died in that same transplant referral region and how many of those were converted to actual donors as kind of a surrogate for quote-unquote potential supply. So I think the authors did as best as they could with that, but you're right, it's a really, it's a really nuanced thing that, that kind of depends on the population being studied. And I realize that most of the co-authors
0: are at your institution, so just a disclaimer, he's not supporting this paper because of his conflict of interest. So thank, thanks so much, Kyle. Ken, why don't you go ahead and and talk about the Gwynn paper IntraGraph B-cell differentiation?
1: Thank you, Roz. Well, I've been in transplantation a long time, and since the beginning of my experience, tolerance is always referred to as the holy grail of transplant. And just like the grail, it's proven equally elusive. I think a lot of this is because we don't understand the mechanisms of tolerance, so it's hard to rationally design a tolerance-inducing protocol and because we don't understand the mechanisms, we have no way to monitor for the development of tolerance. So these two papers address that. The first paper by Gwen et al. is a study recently published in the AJT in which the authors used a mouse kidney transplant model. It's well recognized that in the correct strain combinations, mice accept fully allogeneic kidneys without any immunosuppression. When the authors first undertook this study, they noted that there were lymphoid organs that developed within the transplanted kidney itself that were enriched for T cells, and that these did not occur in the kidneys that were rejected in different strain combinations. So they then wanted to extend that finding and say, what are the cells that are in this graft, and how do they change over time as you go from presumably not tolerant to establishing tolerance? So to do this, they used a combination of uh, single-cell RNA-seq and flow flow cytometry. And what they saw here is that early on, there was a predominance of T cells and macrophages that may have a regulatory phenotype, but rapidly these cell populations decreased and there was an increase in B cell populations of the follicular memory and transitional T cell phenotype. And it's been reported previously these are B cells that may themselves have suppressive properties. They also found that in these strain combinations that weren't tolerant, these cell change, or these changes in the cellular composition of the immune repertoire did not occur. Why is this significant? Well, I think previous work, numerous um, studies in both humans and some experimental studies have suggested a role for regulatory B cells in contributing to the tolerant phenotype, or at least an association. So I think this is important there. What this does, it allows you to look at these rare cell populations and begin to associate genotype and function with small populations of cells that may be important, but could be overwhelmed in bulk analyses. So I think that was very important. I think it does open up a couple questions. The first is, you know, humans don't spontaneously develop tolerance. So how does immunosuppression influence this regulatory or the changes that occur here in the uh, regulatory cell populations? I think that the second question that always comes up is we see this association, but how do we know that they're having a causal effect in terms of establishing the tolerance? So I think it's an important step forward with a few next obvious experiments to be done, but it certainly aligns well with previous literature and shows us as a second point, most of the studies in humans have been done using peripheral blood cells for obvious reasons here they're able to look within the graph it suggests that maybe when we're looking in the peripheral blood we may not be looking in the right compartment to detect important cell populations
0: and certainly you're an expert in that area because i remember quite a number of years ago your your analysis of patients that were spontaneously tolerant and the and notific- the identification of this Breg signature and i used to do this model a lot and always try to understand why some strains were less immunogenic and these animals could have long-term graft survival. And it was always sort of criticized as, well, that's not the way people are. So you can't study rejection in this model.
1: I always do worry a little bit if there's, you know, we're talking about something that doesn't occur naturally, spontaneous tolerance in humans as a whole, not in a predictable way. And so I think that looking at other strain combinations, and other ways to induce tolerance, and saying, is this something that's generalizable, where, you know, multiple ways that get you, multiple pathways to tolerance get you the same findings, or is it unique? And then the other thing is tolerance mechanisms likely evolve over time. There have been studies in both animal models and humans to suggest that the mechanisms that begin to promote tolerance are not the same as those that maintain tolerance, which makes you think that... You know, what they were able to do here, looking over time, is a pretty important way because you can imagine if you're going to have a biomarker of tolerance, you need to study the right marker when that mechanism is operative, right? Mm -hmm. So the mechanism that if in like humans, it's been suggested that early on regulatory T-cells may contribute to tolerance in the chimerism-induced tolerance models, and that later depletion is important. Well, if I'm looking for depletion early on, I might not see the fact they're developing tolerance. Or if I'm studying regulatory cells five years out, they may all be gone and depletion may be operative. So there's a lot of moving pieces, certainly.
0: Great points. Well, tell us a little bit about this, I guess, operational tolerance study using single cell C. Kind of a nice sort of backdrop to the previous study.
1: Yeah. Well, this paper by Zim and colleagues looked at a spontaneously tolerant kidney transplant recipient and used single-cell RNA-seq to try to, again, characterize gene expression at the cellular level. And what they found, again, is that there was an increase in B-cell populations that fit with previous work. They also were able to study B-cell, T-cell interactions and show that some of these ligand receptor interactions from the B cell actually would be predicted to help increase regulatory T cell function. So I think, again, this is nice. It does point out a couple of tricky things. Unlike an experimental model where I can have a control group that varies in a very prescribed way, they made these conclusions based on comparisons to two healthy control recipients or two healthy control patients meaning patients that didn't get immunosuppression that didn't have a allograft in place and one patient who was doing well receiving standard of care immunosuppression again those both introduce variables that may be important for skewing of the immune repertoire right So immunosuppression, it's been shown in and of itself, skews the immune cell or the phenotype or genotype of immune cells, and which agent you use may cause different changes. So that's a kind of tricky thing to get at. You could then say, well, I'm going to look at somebody who's had a kidney transplant who's lost the graft. I've withdrawn immunosuppression. But by then, those people have end-stage renal disease, which induces probably changes in the immune cell repertoire. And then healthy controls make a lot of sense, except they don't have any alloantigen that could drive the skew. And so I think they did they did the kind of best approach you can do to doing this, but all those could, in theory, skew the skew the immune repertoire. And then we come back to the caveats, and my own work has been guilty of this we look where it's safe. It's kind of hard in humans to be constantly biopsying the kidney and trying to expand cells or doing lymph node biopsies. So, are we looking in the right compartment? That's one question. And are the changes we see in the periphery the same as those we see in the organ or secondary lymphoid organs? And then it's harder to do longitudinal studies in the humans. But I think both of these studies demonstrate very nicely the power of the single cell seek approach Mm -hmm. to defining these rare cell interactions and, And you know, have the potential to, as we gain understanding, help us rationally design strategies to induce tolerance by promoting these mechanisms, or at least to monitor for the development or the occurrence of tolerance
0: and at least to have a better mechanistic understand you know you'd want a, a a trial or a therapy that really drives the development and understanding but i i i do i agree i appreciate the the nature of the single cell and you only need one or two to make a comparator but it is quite uh, striking and and your comments i think are well taken you know the association and causation piece and Again, I didn't, I, I personally keep forgetting that the ability to access the graft is really critical and how hard it would be on a needle biopsy of a kidney. One, to get people willing to do it over and over, but two, to be able to have sufficient material. And obviously there are people that we can do single cell out of a little tiny 16 gauge biopsy. So maybe yeah. it can be con- continued by these authors. Really nice pictures too in, in, the, in the second paper by Azim for sure. I had two papers. They're both dealing with antibodies. Uh, the first is by Melissa Young, um, the impact of allele specific anti-HLA um, antigen class one antibodies on organ allocation. And this paper is a collaborative effort within uh, a number of groups, but w- particularly with uh, Beth L. Deaconess and Tissue and Brigham Tissue Typing Lab, so work by Edgar Milford and Dara Goleria, identifying now that we're all focused on virtual cross as most of us are, and posting unacceptable antigens, is there any impact um, for individuals that may have a a donor antigen specificity defined by serological typing to be unacceptable when in reality at a molecular level, it's really an allelic specific antibody that we're detecting. And so they use bank sera and donor cells at their typing lab for over a five-year period. Uh, They have very specific um, traditional protocols for testing sera of weightless candidates for each organ offer and so they had almost 125,000 cross matches uh cdc style crossmatch uh, information available and then they estimated the presence of allelic specific antibodies using single antigen beads with specific cutoffs and focusing primarily on class 1 antigens Uh, identifying 17 serologic HLA class 1 antigens that were represented by two alleles by SAB testing. And then they focused on what was concordant or discordant And noted that there were, um, they probably, they identified five of the 12 that were discordant. There were five that were concordant, but of the, of the 12 remaining that were discordant, um, five of these are now new splits. I had no idea that A2 is now split, but A2, A24, B66, 27, and 57 are now split. So they identified those. And so uh, they evaluated (laughs) 4,400. serum samples with positive HLA antibodies in these 17 antigens and 11% overall were discordant. So they actually try to look at how this would affect allocation in a couple strategies. One, they in table one, they look at uh, you know, you list, know listing data and noted that in, in using A11 as an example, that 33% of the candidates have specificity to 1102, and that would have, you know, by calculations and running um, their strategy, about 11% of organs, uh, organ donors would have been excluded for those individuals. And so when they did this strategy for the other allelic antigens, they noted that about 9% of their waitlist candidates would be excluded from about 11% of donors. And again, using the SPIRE repository, um, they sort of look at the ability of SAB testing to predict CDC cross positivity. And interestingly, when they looked at positives within these, these particular um, antigens, only about half the time was it predictive of CDC cross positivity, although a negative SAB testing uh, was very highly correlated to a negative CDC And then they do a similar finding with flow crossmatch. They look at the predictability of SAB testing and and flow crossmatch. And here, I think things are a little bit more specific that really, in in their analysis, using very specific cell types for three of the HLA antigens that they had plenty of donor cells to, they identified discordant serum to A11, A66, and B44. And so um, they were able to predict who would have a negative crossmatch. And they actually went back and recalculated the calculated PRAs in table four, for example, of of about 156 individuals that they are actively following that are discordant and demonstrate that they could actually reduce the CPRA for about 3%. Now, that might not really matter if your CPRA is 45, but they did focus on the very highly sensitized, those that are like 99.8% or higher and demonstrated that they were able to reduce about a third of those individuals that had a CPRA greater than 98% to a lower category. So again, you know, I threw a lot of numbers. I think the main consideration here is that, you know, we continue to think about HLA with serological typing because on on organ offers, we don't do gene typing for the donor, at least not yet. Certainly, this kind of work identifies that there are opportunities that may be overlooked for patients when we consider uh, posting, you know, unacceptable antigens, especially when we have alleles that are present. And again, um, this the pause of the study is they were able to prove this because they had these donor cells that had allelic specificity and they had this, you know, this unbiased cohort. Is this going to translate into clinical care maybe at their center? I think the difficulty, again, is that when we get, you know, part of the problem we're getting into is we're getting these organs allocated that aren't really close by. And there is not often time to do the deeper sequencing necessary that you can do on the recipient. And so uh, there'd have to be a, a significant change in policy in terms of how unacceptables would be posted, because right now they're serologically posted into UNOS, not by allelic specificity. So that might be something for one of the HLA giants at Emory, for example, that might want to address that in the future. And I know Ken's laughing because he, I know, I know, you all use, I mean, I, I, it's funny how you could just think back that, you know, eight or nine years ago, we were like arguing about using virtual cross and people, some programs just didn't even want to consider it. And now everybody does it as a routine. So uh, I do think there's some important clinical implications. And then I'll, I'm going to finish up on an animal model paper. So back to the mouse kidney transplant model. So this is work by Cleveland Clinic Group and Volushkik uh, and uh the lead author is Gorbacheva looking at autoantibodies against um, of all things DNA topoisomerase 1. So this group used their um accelerated rejection antibody-mediated rejection model where they pre-sensitize uh, an animal and then have it get a with a skin graft and then have it get some uh, CD4 positive memory cells in, 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 in a trans, in a, uh, adoptively transferred, followed by then a kidney from the same donor strain and show that there's very rapid rejection. And, and using these animals' serum, they screened and used a, a commercial platform to detect IgG, um, antibodies. And specifically, the, the common theme here that they identified in a number of their experimental models using Balvin to Black 6. For example, was this expression of of IgG antibody to topoisomerase 1 and a specific epitope at that, which was 205 to 219, with very high signaling dependent on the adoptive transfer of these memory T cells and also in the absence of alpha beta T cell uh, receptor, did not actually develop in these animals. And so the rest of the paper really looks at what is this autoantibody doing and using it as a model. Again, the other autoantibodies I think that we think about in the clinical literature are things like uh, angiotensin-1 receptor, which was published about 20 years ago and was associated with chronic injury and late graft failure, things like vimentin, collagen-4 antibodies. And they've been looked at in uh, not just in kidney, but also in lung transplant. So, you know, I could get go on into the deep details. Uh, it's kind of an elegant paper. I mean, they looked at the responses by giving this antigen directly to the animals and sensitizing the animals and adjuvant to um, this antigen and then doing a kidney. Interestingly, when they did a warm ischemia model, they didn't, even when they sensitized the animals to topoisomerase 1, they didn't really see substantial ATN or injury. They were able to detect some changes in urinary and gal, but really the levels of, of BUN, which they use as their marker of kidney injury, and the histology were not impressive. However, when they um, gave these animals this antigen and then went ahead with giving them a transplant, they did see accelerated rejection. However, while they saw detectable anti-topoisomerase antibody after the antigen, they did not see high levels of donor-specific antigen, even though... The histology looked fairly mixed. There was both C4D deposition, but a lot of inflammatory cell infiltrates. And it wasn't clear why either neither class 1 nor class 2 antigen um, increased. And they also did some experiments with adoptive transfer of serum, of, of um, antibodies that are against topo 1 to the animals prior to transplantation. And again, Though they saw evidence of rejection, it was really more of a cellular rejection, if you can believe it, and that they and they real and and they saw evidence within the graft of CD4 allo-specific CD4 positive T cells that made gamma interferon, but they didn't really see that in the spleens, and they didn't really see any induction of HLA antibody against class one and class two, which these animals are mismatched for. So again, sort of like a you know, sort of a, a, a very Detailed study and trying to understand the mechanisms of these autoantibodies, some of which raise more questions. It's clear that there's an associate that you need both an alloe and maybe an inflammatory response that's beyond just warm ischemia that can trigger this. And maybe it they work synergistically. Interestingly, they don't see deposition of these antibodies within the kidney graft. Again, I would point out, though, that this is an nuclear antigen, so unless you have apoptosis, you're probably not going to see these antibodies develop. You're not going to see necessarily immune complex development. So, you know, what precisely is immunogenic in the mice is kind of unclear because they're not making higher levels of, of class 1 or class 2 as you would expect. There's a nice editorial by Manny Zorn uh, about this paper that I'd urge you to take a look at that also brings up some of the questions of why this phenomena happens, but again, contributes to the positive sort of literature and um, again, notes that that some of these responses are not unexpected, um, somewhat taken together when you think about how AT1 receptor maybe is functioning as well, but again, really sort of remains a mystery. Um, and why specifically did they detect topor isomerase? 1 through this array that was available commercially and, and perhaps because they focused on IgG, not IgM. But again, kind of a neat paper and really sort of uh, adds to the literature about how these structural autoantibodies may function. I don't know if you guys have well, any comments. Yeah, go I was s-
1: yeah, going to say I'm stressing my aging brain cells, but didn't uh, David Wilkes some time ago and Will Burlingham based on rat studies, where I think it was Collagen-5 mm-hmm. come up with a model, and they demonstrated that also in humans, I think in a New England Journal paper, but where they thought that ischemic reperfusion injury exposed cryptic antigens, which could be like the topoisomerase, that then allowed like an antibody response to create more damage that then triggered a cellular response. Am I remembering that no, right? you, you are right. And, with that right. No, you're right.
0: And again,
1: the difference here is that they did
0: isolate the ischemic injury as a potential mediator because these donor grafts do have both warm and cold ischemia. But they were on. Un- but the addition of this uh, topo isomerase hyper uh, and you know either the serum or the antigen really didn't immediately affect this innate immune response. And so I always thought that 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 those guys that that Wilkes and Burlingham were talking about sort of like a yin-yang where innate is activating allo, and allo is inactivating. Here, this looks more like these um, antibodies are really critical to T memory, T cells that are allo specific. And so I'm not exactly sure that there, that this mechanism may be slightly different because those guys were looking at a structural protein within the graft. Mm-hmm. This is a nuclear protein and True. maybe something that we haven't looked at before. I mean, I, I, I know that antibodies to... This topar summers one have been looked at in autoimmune disease, but certainly I don't think anyone's really identified them much in allotransplantation, or at least not in humans. And, and that might be something where people will screen sera uh, in HLA labs and see if there's any association or certainly when graphs are failing, if they identify them.
2: The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at njtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.